TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Jessica Hish about how her career got started, about her love for the internet, and about how designers shouldn't be expected to be able to do everything. Specializing is good. You know, you want... When you get a tattoo, you know, you don't... Just because you buy a tattoo gun doesn't mean you want to give yourself a tattoo. Here's Debbie Millman. At some point, every designer faces the same problem. An interesting project, but it pays nothing. So should you work for free? Well, it's a simple question that leads to other questions, such as, is it for your mom? Is it for a nonprofit? A tough decision is now made easier and more entertaining by a clever flowchart designed by Jessica Hish. This is just one of many curious side projects that this young designer slash illustrator slash lettering artist has done. She has also designed a new stamp for the post office, covers of classic books for Barnes & Noble, and illustrations for New York Magazine. At a tender age, when many young designers are working for free, if they're working at all in this crummy economy, Jessica Hish is happening. Jessica, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks so much, Debbie. Pleasure to be here. So first, I must know, is it true you have a cat named Olivia Benson? (laughs) Well, we named her Olive. Her original name was Buttons, which she's just like was such a mean cat when we adopted her that we thought it would be just too ironic to keep it at Buttons. So Olive seemed the most appropriate black cat name. But because I'm a crazy, crazy Law & Order SVU fan in terms of watching it while I work, I casually call her Olivia Benson. And now Russ, my fiance, has adopted it as her official name as well. (laughs) I love it. I just recently became a Law & Order SVU person. And I also have a crazy mad crush on Olivia Benson. So when I saw that that's what you called your cat, I had to ask, what what is it about Olivia Benson that you love so much? 
Well, she's hard as nails, but yes, still looks is. good in a pantsuit. <laughs> <laughs> she always has great hair. Yeah, she's, she's fantastic. She really is. So in any case, you are an illustrator, you're a designer, you're a self-described avid interneter. So how would you define avid interneter? Well, like many people my generation, I am essentially chained to my computer 24 hours a day, but not because I do not want to be or because I'm addicted to social networks for no reason whatsoever. I've just found that being attached to the Internet all the time has just been incredibly helpful. I love to talk to strangers. So essentially, like all day, I can feel like I'm surrounded by people, even if I'm alone at home in pajama pants. <laughs> and people have just been insanely helpful. It makes the world feel so small. When I was traveling um, for a conference in Sydney and I didn't know anyone, I was by myself. I you know, reached out onto Twitter, hey, anybody have any restaurant recommendations? And ended up meeting up with a, a group of people at a restaurant. <laughs> Flash mob at a restaurant. Yeah, it was just wonderful. So when you say you're chained to your computer, I get the vision of you being in your pajama pants, literally chained in front of a screen, but you're out and about quite a lot. So is it really that you're chained to the internet as opposed to the computer? Or tell tell us about how that works. Well, judging from the amount of computers that I have, I can say that I'm almost always in front of a computer. But yes, chained to the internet is probably the bigger, the bigger statement. So I do travel quite a bit. And actually, I have a separate studio space, but I work from home a lot too because, you know, I just like to switch up my environments every couple of hours, but I tend to work more because I'm switching up my environments. But yeah, I mean, it's an addiction, but it's kind of been an addiction that has been in my favor. (laughs) Now, you also are a self-described compulsive oversharer. What does that mean? That means that, for instance, I took my cats to the vet yesterday and was just bawling at my house while they were, you know, <laughs> under their anesthesia still. And I felt the need to share that with the, all the Twitter followers instead of just keeping it to myself or sharing it with my mom. Is your other cat, please tell me his name is Elliot Stabler? No, his name is Billy. <laughs> That's what his name was from the ASPCA. And we just kept it. I was going to change it to Popeye because it was going to be Olive and Popeye. But then he was just such a Billy. He's just like the dumbest, most lovable cat ever. And for our listeners that might not know who Elliot Stabler is, he's Olivia Benson's partner on Law & Order SVU. <laughs> Indeed. And if you don't know, you should be watching Absolutely. More absolutely. So when did you know that you wanted to be a designer, Jessica? I actually didn't really know what graphic design was until I got to college. I grew up in kind of a small town in Pennsylvania that mysteriously has turned out a couple of really good designers. But um, when I was in high school, I was going to Catholic school, and they actually wouldn't let me take extra art classes. So I transferred to public school in order to take more art classes. But because of that, I kind of didn't really have anything in my portfolio before my senior year. I just took like six or seven art classes my senior year. And then I got turned down from community college for my portfolio. You're kidding. I'm telling you the truth. Keystone College can totally, wow. like, I want to bet you they're kicking flip themselves them the right now. now. <laughs> <laughs> but I ended up, um, Tyler School of Art recruited a lot from my high school because they're a Pennsylvania state school and they just, you know, went out to a lot of the high schools around the area and kind of tried to pull in people. And my high school art teacher was just incredibly talented as a teacher and really pushed people, didn't make art into kind of a blow off class. 
And she really just sold me to uh, Carmina, the admissions counselor. So with only like maybe five pieces in my portfolio, they decided to take a chance on me. Now, did you have any idea who had gone to Tyler before you? I had no idea. Tyler, I mean, I wanted to go to SVA or to RISD, but I had like $100 saved for college. <laughs> and because I was kind of like a normal teenager that, you know, screwed around too much when they were in their freshman and sophomore year, I didn't have all like the crazy AP classes and all these extra things. Things to get me into one of the like crazy high-end schools. I only took the SATs twice because I wanted to like beat out another girl in my class that I thought was annoying. Did you? I did. I did oh, beat good. her. Good, good, it good. It was good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> now, I read that you started drawing in college when you couldn't afford to buy fonts and didn't have the time to pour through the free font sites for something actually worth using. Is that true? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, if you have gone to art school at all and have gone to a design program, you know that like someone passes around that like 10000 free font CD, like it's like a drug or something. And then you spend like 11 hours pouring through it and all you can find is like crack house and gill sands, you know. (laughs) So after that, I mean, I had like $17 in my bank account. I ended up just, you know, deciding to do some lettering for a project because I, I couldn't find something that was sort of default that felt right. And I really loved the process of it and just kind of went with it. And when did you realize that you had not only a penchant for hand lettering, but also an extraordinary talent? I think it wasn't until when I did a lot of lettering for a project my senior year. And part of it was that the teachers were pretty open with me about the fact that, like, they normally didn't necessarily encourage lettering for projects because they were like, you know, you guys are still figuring stuff out. you got to figure out how to work with fonts before you can go make your own. Do you agree with that? I don't. I think that you do have to have a really good understanding of the structure of type if you want to make lettering that is soundly based and not just zany. Like if you want to make crazy hand-drawn lettering, go for it. You know, don't have a background. But if you want to make anything that's based in history or things that the the type designers won't get pissed at you about, then it's really good to study the history. Um, Now you're laughing as if that has actually happened to you. Did you create something that type designers got pissed at you about or have you gotten pissed at other people for doing? Well, they never get pissed at you, but they for certain can be a little bit judgmental. (laughs) Mm, Designers judgmental. Hmm. Well, part of it, too, is that I feel like, you know, there's certain realms within the design world that are just kind of these very tight microcosms and they just don't understand that there are designers that don't know what they're talking about, you know. So, I mean, it took until I didn't even hear who Matthew Carter was until I was like 22, So and that blew people's minds within the type community. They were like, oh, my God, how did you not know who Matthew Carter was? And I was like, I don't know. They just didn't talk about him in college. Well, I find that I have students that don't know who some of the masters are. And I find that somewhat heartbreaking. Do you feel that designers need to have a better understanding of history in order to achieve greatness? I do think that they do. I think that there's kind of a fundamental problem in a lot of art schools where students are entirely judging their education based on their portfolios instead of what they're actually learning in college. And it's just hard to put onto paper like what you've learned if it's not, you know, an awesome poster that you've designed. So I I do think it's really important to learn the history. And I think, you know, it's not something that ends at college. And, you know, you should really take the few the first few years out of college as a time to just concentrate and learn that kind of stuff. Because I know that when you're in school, you're just competing for, you know, to have the best portfolio, trying to get as much work as possible. And you don't necessarily have time to like really dig deep into the history books. Now, you said that you didn't know who Matthew Carter was until you were 22. How old are you now? I am 27. 
So it's been five years since you've learned who Matthew Carter is. Has he become an influence in any way? He has become a person that I greatly admire, but his work is, of course, very different from any work that I do or plan to do in the near future. How would you describe that difference? Lettering and type design are just apples and oranges. I originally thought that they were going to be very connected. So I actually signed up for the Type at Cooper Continuing Ed program thinking like, oh, my God, typeface design. It's totally the next step in my career. No problem. And after six months, I realized like, holy cow, this is like the opposite of what I do. In what way is it the opposite? Because you did come out making some faces after that experience. You made buttermilk after that, I believe. I actually made buttermilk before that. Oh, you did? Yeah. So was it the – you have two faces – Right? I have three now. One was Snowflake, which is a very, very like illustrative lettering typeface that, you know, it's not a workhorse <laughs> by any means. <laughs> it's uh, not Helvetica. Yeah, it's not Helvetica. <laughs> but I did make um, a revival typeface while I was in the Cooper type program called Brioche, which I released not that long ago. Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful face. And wasn't it recently used on in an ad or in an, uh, in a print ad? Well, they did use the buttermilk on Holiday Barbie 2011. That's what it was. <laughs> That's what it was. That was a daymaker. <laughs> that must have been something else. I mean, were you a Barbie fan growing up or are you still a Barbie fan now? You know, I was I was such like a tomboy. I was like the, you know, softball player that wore like gross Tasmanian Devil t-shirts until the hems rolled out. But it was still like I knew so many people that collected them and like my grandparents and, and aunts and uncles were always trying to like, you know, be like, you should start collecting these. They're going to be so valuable. <laughs> but I never, never really did it to me. And this year I'm just like, I'm going to start collecting Barbies. <laughs> wow. Well, I have to say that in many ways it's probably good that I have never actually worked on a Barbie project because then it would be like, OK, I'm done. That's it. What yeah. else is there? What other mountain is there? I to definitely climb? took the rest of the day off that day as soon as my <laughs> friend told me that. I was like, oh, man, Barbie? I'm totally going to go to the coffee shop and read. (laughs) (laughs) So now you feel like there's a big difference between creating fonts or creating type and doing your hand lettering. What is the biggest difference? Well, the biggest difference is a lot of people uh, misunderstand lettering and think that whenever I, you know, illustrate a word, I'm illustrating an entire alphabet and that it can be repurposed. I get approached all the time for the kind of ribbon lettering that I do saying like, oh, can you send over that alphabet so that we can set a few titles? And I'm like, you know, that doesn't exist as an alphabet. Every time I draw it brand new. And that's the real difference. I mean, when you're making typefaces, they have to be incredibly, like, not necessarily modular, but they have to be idiot-proof. Everything has to work together. You should be able to hand it off to the most non-experienced designer, and they shouldn't be able to mess it up all that badly. Whereas with lettering, if you took any of my titles that I do for book covers or for advertising or anything and rearrange the letters, it would just look like the biggest pile of crap you've ever seen. Like, they're just (laughs) not meant to be rearranged. So... After you graduated, you worked at a company called Headcase in Philadelphia. What was it? Tell us about your first job experience. Did the people at Headcase know, ah, Jessica, she's destined for greatness? Well, it was actually wonderful. It was kind of like the best job I could have had in Philadelphia. I had two internships, one at QuirkBooks, which Headcase did a lot of work for, and then another one at a small studio called SK Design Works. But I had both of the men that worked at Headcase as professors when I was in college. So I already knew that I kind of got along with them and just kind of inquired, hey, if you guys need any help around the office, I would be happy to intern. So I ended up as their intern for a year before they took me on as full-time freelance. And it was just like such a dream job to have out of college. 
they did kind of half illustration and half book design. And, you know, the books were all for, like, Melcher or these big, like, HBO shows. So I got to work on, like, a lot of cool projects. I got to go on set on The Sopranos. You know, really? It was, yeah, it was just kind of, like, a super cool experience. And also, Paul Keppel, the, the owner of Headcase, is just an incredible designer and just a super humble, awesome human being, too. So I think I learned a lot from working for him in terms of, like, what I wanted a boss to be. So then you approached your new boss, and you got a job with Louise Feely. Indeed. Tell us about that, because that was quite a specific outreach that you made to get that job. And I think that's really important for my listeners to hear about, because you actually pursued her in a very specific way, and and, and a few people in that realm that you wanted to work for. So tell us about that. Indeed. So I actually, um, when I was working for Headcase, I kind of fell in love with illustration. I was also still like in love with lettering, but didn't really know that it was a separate industry within illustration. So I just thought, oh my God, this illustration stuff is so fun. I love making images. I love working. I love the deadlines. I love the reading all these crazy articles. So I really wanted to pursue illustration as, you know, at least half of my career. So I ended up making a promo that was a, a holiday promo of the 12 Days of Christmas. And I made 12 postcards. I spent like two grand putting it together. Wow. For somebody that was, you didn't have $17 in college. I had to like save up for it. I got it like offset printed. You know, they were 12 postcards that were put together with like a belly band within like a nice envelope. I got them all hand canceled. It was very fancy as like a first promo to send out. So I sent them out to about 250 art directors at magazines and stuff that I found. Um, My, um, my now rep, Frank Sturgis, I, I had been redesigning his website at the time, so he gave me a lot of the names to send it to. And then um, I sent it out to five people who I thought were really awesome, including Louise and Christoph and uh, Nicholas Blackman and a couple other people. And Louise was the only person that responded to my mailer. So it ended up being the most successful mailer ever, but also like the least successful in terms of illustration. Yeah, but if you do want one person to respond, oh, she's I know. the it one, It was like right? winning the lottery. It yeah. was like winning the lottery. You only need one, right? Yeah. So she had me come in for a portfolio interview and I had no idea she was hiring. I just thought she was like doing one of my professors a favor or something. And uh, she offered me a job that day and I just, you know, had to freak out and cancel all my plans in Philadelphia and moved to New York within a couple of weeks. Were you nervous? Were you excited? Tell us about what that experience was. Here you are. You've got your first job in Philadelphia coming out of school. You're meeting with one of the greatest designers living today. What was that like for you? It was, and you were what, 22, 23? I was 22. It was crazy. I was so nervous to meet with her. And, you know, the Tyler portfolios are these giant briefcase portfolios, too. And I think the day that I came up, it was raining. So I was wearing, like, a black trash bag carrying this, like, 80-pound portfolio. Faux leather. Yeah, into, like, this pristine office, you know, meeting with a legend of design. And when she offered me the job, I was I was ecstatic. But at the same time, I didn't know how to quit my old job because it was so great. And I had been, I just started teaching at Philadelphia University. And I had to kind of, like, wow. back out of it within a couple of weeks and, you know, help find a replacement for that. That. I was working part-time for Headcase at the time and then freelancing the other part, hanging out with my friend Jason from the Heads of State. It was kind of just like really super fun, but absolutely best decision I ever made. <laughs> so what, w- what would you say would be the biggest thing you learned from Louise? I don't know if I could really pinpoint the biggest thing that I learned. A while couple of small things then. <laughs> um, small I, but meaningful. I certainly learned how to treat people in terms of like 
if I'm ever going to be a boss, I know how to be a good boss now because of Louise. What like, are the great tenants or what are the tenants of being a great boss? I mean, she was so communicative with us, just very fair with everything in the office. And she, you know, bought you birthday presents. She, you know, had gelato days. We would she'd occasionally cook lunch and stuff. It was just like this, you know, crazy, crazy legend in design was still humble enough to, you know, treat her employees like they were people. <laughs> And that was kind of a huge deal to me because I was just 22. I didn't know what I was doing in design. I was just ecstatic to be in New York and stuff. And I, I thought for sure that I would just it would not end up being such a nurturing environment. And it really was. How did she influence your work? I mean, she influenced essentially everything that I have done up to this point. I get asked a lot, like, where I find my resources for all the vintage type. And I'm still just working from the giant database of visual information I took in while working for Louise. I mean, essentially, after the first six months that I was working there, she would just bring in these, you know, volumes of beautiful, beautiful vintage type for me to look at and, you know, reference when I was drawing something for her. So essentially, I got to do what I loved all day, every day for like two and a half years. I learned so much about just kind of like the structure of type and, you know, the different eras that I could pull from, the kind of things that I got excited about, which happened to be kind of in the same realm of the stuff that she got excited about. So we just had such a beautiful working relationship when I was there. It was just so easy. Now, in 2009, after two and a half years of what you described as little sleep and a lot of hand lettering, you left Louise to pursue a freelance career. What made you decide to do that? It was a super tough decision. I think it took me about five months before I even was able to work up the courage to decide to leave. But um, I had been working freelance as well as working for Louise. And it was one thing that was also really good about working for Louise is that the hours were incredibly regular. So I was able to do a lot of the freelance illustration stuff. Um, How are you getting that freelance work? How is that coming to you? I had a rep from when I graduated college, but actually... So a lot a lot of the work came in through him at first because he sent out a lot of promos and stuff. We sent out maybe like 18,000 promos a year to places around the U.S. and internationally, and that really helped. And, you know, being a part of the group helped, too, because he had a lot of really kind of outstanding illustrators that were in the group that would bring people in, and then they'd kind of, you know, look around and find us newbies on there, too. How did you even get a rep? How, how does that even happen? Well, I actually knew a few of the people that he was repping because the Philadelphia design community is really tiny. And I had met um, Jason because he had, he was one of the portfolio judges my year. And then I had met um, Gina Triplett and Matt Curtius just through actually working for Headcase because they were friends with them. And so when Frank wanted to redesign his website, he asked a few of the people in the group who they would recommend. And he thought it was completely serendipitous that several people recommended me when really it's just like they just knew me. <laughs> <laughs> so then after a couple of months, I showed him some of my illustration work, which was still like very flat vectory because that's the kind of stuff that was happening at Headcase. But after I did the 12 Days of Christmas promo, he was like, no, this is it. You figured it out. And then after that point, he decided to rent me. And so what's the biggest change that you've noticed in your life since making the move from full-time employment to freelance? I am very much aware of my slacker time now. <laughs> You know, I think that you end up working a lot more when you're freelance than you do when you have a job, just because it's hard to keep regular hours. So you end up being like, oh, I'll just take longer to do this. And then suddenly you're working 17 hours a day because you woke up and worked for four hours and then took a break and then worked for seven hours. And, and then watched yeah. some Law and Order. I, I work while I'm watching Law and Order, though. So those are I, do, I actually do that as well. So what, what do you find to be um, fulfilling about working and watching Law and Order or anything that might be on? 
Well, Law and Order is one of the best things to work to because if you think about it, the plot arc is incredibly regular it like is. for every show. <laughs> I think I figured out the formula yeah. too. If like, you just look up during the dun-duns, you're kind of good to go. <laughs> <laughs> so aside from uh, working longer hours, and it doesn't sound actually like you were because when you were working for Louise, you had your regular hours, but then you were working all night on your freelance. Well, what ended up happening is that it was almost like my time – at the office with Louise was my least stressful time because most of the day I would just be like freaking out about all the stuff I had to do that night Um, because, you know, clients were very understanding actually. Illustration clients are a little more understanding of people with day jobs because you don't have to actually ever meet with people, which is kind of nice. But at the same time, if I got emails during the day, I felt incredibly guilty answering them and would try and save them just for lunchtime. But, you know, with any clients, there's going to be some like random emergency where they need something and you just can't you can't do anything about it when you have a day job. So it it just got to be like very stressful to have to deal with balancing both lives. So once I went freelance, it, it, it was like a breath of fresh air, because if I had an emergency, it wasn't a problem. I could just figure it out. In addition to your extraordinary talent, one of the things that really put you on the map in the design community was a project that you started when you first went freelance, a project called Daily Drop Cap. So talk about what Daily Drop Cap is slash was. <laughs> well, when I left working for Louise, I knew that my schedule was going to be kind of all over the map and that I am not incredibly disciplined at, you know, showering before noon and stuff like that. <laughs> So I wanted to, you know, do a project that kind of kept me on a schedule when my schedule was going from like very regimented to just all over the map. So I set up Daily Drop Cap. I originally wanted to do an alphabet a week and realized really quickly that was far too ambitious. So I settled on a letter a day and it ended up being just kind of like the best thing I could have ever done for myself. Why? It just took off as a project. It inspired so many young designers would write me and tell me, oh my God, your project made me want to do a daily project. And because I did this daily project, I started getting work. And a lot of people ended up kind of knowing who I was because of Daily Drop Cap. So how did you get publicity for it initially? I mean, you put up a one letter a day after a couple of weeks. What do you have? 30 letters? <laughs> so how did, how, did it, how did it catch on like that? How did it become this really cultural phenomena? I think a lot of people started paying attention once I got past the one or two month mark because they saw that I was being really regular about posting. And I think at the time there weren't a lot of like lettering websites like that. A website called Letter Cult existed, but um, a few friends of mine, friends of type, started up a site around the same time. And it, it, theirs is a very similar thing, except it's, you know, four people collaborating instead of just one. And I think that the biggest thing that kind of put it around was the internet. And that's one of the reasons why I have just kind of a a love-love relationship with the internet. Um, You know, Tina from Swissmas wrote about it, and that was a huge push. Um, Jason Santa Maria wrote about it, which, of course, I mean, that guy has more Twitter followers than, like, the president. Not really, but Close enough. (laughs) (laughs) And so you then went from Daily Drop Cap, and I think you had 12 or 13 alphabets. 12 alphabets that I completed, and then there was a 13th guest alphabet. And then you've been doing regular internet projects ever since. So in addition to all of the freelance work that you do, designing stamps, designing book covers, etc., you also have a number of other sites that you've created. The Should I Work for Free site, which I want to talk about, mom, this is how Twitter works.com. 
you also have your own blog where you have posts like The Dark Art of Pricing and so forth. So you seem to have quite a following of people that are interested in your point of view as well as your actual output of design work. Which has been really wonderful. I mean, the main reason why I've started all these projects is that a lot of the lettering work that I do isn't exactly the most intellectual work. <laughs> I get I do a lot of work for advertising, which is really wonderful. But at the same time, like someone hires you and says, draw the word Christmas in ribbon. And that's kind of all that you do. It's not really a, a giant exercise in brainwaves. So I've used a lot of these side projects as a way to kind of exercise my my other creative muscles and copywriting. I love copywriting and, and writing for things. And I love just coming up with like really stupid conceptual projects that I can never do for clients. All right. So let's talk about some of them because I think they're really intriguing. Let's talk about steal my idea. So let's talk talk about that. You have a bunch of ideas on this site. Um, You have an idea that's called a Zipcar-like gym service. You have the Internet is now diamonds. Oh, that was like very... That was very topical, though, that one. <laughs> Forwarded emails from mom. So so what what about steal my idea? Let's talk about that one. Well, I always have these. The thing is, if anyone pays attention to the stuff that I do, I'm churning out side projects like crazy. I think I have like 11 of them at this point. And it's kind of like a little overwhelming to maintain all of them. But at the same time, I feel like I'm constantly – I have this walk that I do every day from the Bedford Avenue stop to my studio in Greenpoint, which is about 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And I'm always coming up with like some random weird idea idea on that walk that I wish that I had time to do myself, but I don't. So instead, I'd tell the internet, hey, do you feel like making a a website called ifeelawful.com in which all that you do is scout out bodegas that deliver like Advil and Gatorade to hang hungover people? You know, and now what about your cake site? You you got did you get a lot? You had a, you had you posted a, a query about asking people to send you cake. That it started out as a joke at the studio because when I, w- I was uh, sharing a space with Tina from Swissmas and uh, a bunch of other web designers down there. And Tina, of course, gets a ton of requests constantly for people to kind of pimp their stuff on her website. And people do that a little bit to me, but not quite that much. But they do it a lot with like, hey, will you send my portfolio to other art directors that are looking? And <laughs> I decided to make a joke of it and say, you know, I, I won't judge you at all based on your work. But I will judge you based on your baking ability. So if you can if you can send me a cake that's creative and good, I will do a massive write up about how awesome you are at baking and how that probably translates into your design portfolio. So it's how much baked how many how many baked goods did you get for a while? It was like once a week or something. So everybody at the studio was like, "Man, this is awesome!" And then by like maybe the third or fourth week, they were like, "All right, I think I'm about four pounds in. I think we should maybe quell this a little bit." <laughs> okay. Okay. So now what about your should I work for free, which is really taken on viral status at this point? This is a site that you created. It's also now a poster that you've created. I've seen it everywhere. Should I work for free? Let's talk about that. Well, I love uh, one of the things that is kind of like a a thing that runs through all of my work is that I love making resources for people. And it's part. it's not entirely altruistic. It's mostly like I either wish that it existed for myself or I wish that it existed so that when people ask me questions, I can just direct them to this other thing. I was an RA in college, and I feel like that has had the giantest effect on my you know, career as a designer. Um, but the Should I Work for Free chart was exactly that. People wrote me all the time um, asking my opinion about you know, kind of the spec work things or asking what kind of things they should charge or asking if they were being taken advantage of by someone. And instead of you know, answering everyone on a case-by-case basis, because I didn't really want to be like a pricing consultant, 
consultant for a living, I decided to make the flowchart um, to kind of voice my opinion on it without really, you know, writing a really heady article or anything. I think it's really helpful. And I actually feel that type of way in which you're helping people is is really optimistic because I think that young people more than ever before are put in a position where they are asked to do so much for free and it's they're really asked true. to do so much to prove their value but they're not getting any value in return. There's this sort of magical carrot that's waved in front of them. And I think that the your flowchart explains that in a very non-preachy, very open and genuine way. So thank you for doing that. I think it's been a really um, important document for people to be able to be inspired by and, and, and learn from. You, when you, you said that people ask you a lot about how to get freelance work and that one of the answers that I liked most that I thought would be fun to talk about was um, the answer that you had, which is don't be a dick. <laughs> so how do I get freelance work? First answer, don't be a dick. What do you mean by that? Well, if you think about it, how many people out there have the same or more talent than you have? but are maybe not as personable. You know, I think one of the one of the biggest things that people underestimate is that when you want to find someone to work for you, you want to find someone that you like. Ultimately, especially when it comes to full-time jobs or anything, one of the biggest qualifications is, do I want to spend nine hours in an office with this person? And I think in terms of freelance, it's the same thing. I mean, when you work for someone for the first time, if it's a great experience, even if they have the option to go to someone else that maybe is, you know, underpricing you or something, they might come back to you just because you were a pleasure to work with. So I think it's really important that like, you need to always care about how much you respect your clients, how much like, you know, mutual respect, of course. But for sure, I mean, just being nice to others will get you so much farther than your talent most of the time. It's interesting that you say that. I was just recently asked, what do I look for in a person that I'm interviewing or hire, that I'm looking to hire? And my standard answer has always been, you know, really good, genuinely interesting work. And it just hit me. After all these years, I'm really looking for somebody that's curious and exuberant. Yeah. Somebody with a really quick smile. You know, I want to be around somebody that's happy. <laughs> you want to be around people that make you feel good. Exactly. 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 I loved the FAQ section of your website. And you wrote, you write on your website that you hold a pen like a child holds a crayon and a tight fist that will only catalyze the carpal tunnel. <laughs> really? Really? Is that, yeah, it's true. Why is that? I don't know. I, I feel like at one point I did learn how to hold a pen right, but somehow drawing and playing the violin and something molded into this weird tight fist that leaves like nail marks in my palm. <laughs> so <laughs> I tend to Sounds not be able to draw. <laughs> I tend to not be able to draw for more than like an hour or two at a time. Otherwise, I end up just getting like a numb hand. <laughs> now, I also understand that your favorite letters to draw are the R and the K. That is true. Why? There's the most variety, I think, of those letters. The uppercase really? R and K. Yeah. I mean, S's are difficult to draw. O's are boring. Q's are really fun because you can have a lot of fun with the tail. But I feel like in terms of letter, like if you go from script to Roman to anything, like R's and K's have some of the most variety. Now, you think that the letter J is the most difficult to create. I think that the, I just really don't like J's that much. I, I think it's, it might, Jay, Jessica. I know. That might be the biggest reason is people hate to like look at their own name or maybe they love to look at their own name. I don't know. But I personally like have the toughest time drawing a J that I like. The one in buttermilk I absolutely hate and I kind of want to redo. But yeah. 
In February of 2010, you wrote a piece on your blog that is titled, Why You Should Not Hire Me to Design Your Website. Why shouldn't we hire you to design a website? This is something that I think a lot of young designers have to deal with is they graduate from college and everyone wants them to do everything. You know, you should know motion, you should know flash, you should know HTML, you should know how to be an amazing print designer, and you should know how to do lettering, blah, blah, blah. You should be able to do a, do everything and do everything well. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I mean, I've definitely specialized in terms of what I do as a career, but I get approached a lot to do kind of like PSD mock-ups for sites that then someone's cousin or something will code. And I really wanted to kind of write on this because I think that web designers can be underappreciated a lot of times because it's the same thing like how people say, just because you have Photoshop doesn't mean you're a designer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all the, the tools for web design are relatively free. I mean, you just need like a text editor and the internet, essentially. But, you know, the knowledge and skill takes a lot of time to, to focus on. And I really wanted to kind of write about how web design is such a collaborative process and you can't just, you know, cut apart a PSD and throw it online and have it be an amazing website. And that, you know, it's really best to hire the people that do what they do best whenever possible, especially with something like web design, because it's it's ever evolving. You know, you have to be in the industry and really understanding what the current standards are in order to, you know, keep up with everything and make websites that actually are functional on, you know, cross-platform and in all the different browsers and make sense and don't feel like websites that were designed in 1996. Right. So I think I really wanted to write as kind of on behalf of web designers or really anyone that specializes to say, Specializing is good. You know, you want when you get a tattoo, you know, you don't just because you buy a tattoo gun doesn't mean you want to give yourself a tattoo. Good point. Now, I understand that you recently designed a stamp. I did through Louise Feely. So So it is a love stamp. When will it be out? It will be out, I believe, in January of 2012. I actually designed the first day of issue cancel, the digital cancel this week. So, wow. <laughs> but they still don't have the exact date. So hopefully early. But and I'm very excited to be able to use them on my own wedding invitations. Absolutely. I was going <laughs> to ask you if that, was, if that was going to be what you were going to be using. What does it feel like to see your work on a stamp? I will tell you to my mom, it feels amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As your friend, I think it feels amazing, too. <laughs> it is one of, like, the biggest deal things I think I'll probably ever do in my life. And I'm so happy to have been able to collaborate with Louise on it, too, because I actually designed it while I was working for Louise. Right. But people have contacted me and I'm sure Louise because there are so few women that have designed stamps and even fewer women or even anyone that is a type designer or has designed a typeface. So there's actually like an entire blog set up to former type, like type designers that have designed stamps and there's like 10. So it's, I mean, it's a massive deal. And especially because it's the love stamp. I mean, it's not like a two cent stamp. Right. The last thing I want to ask you about, Jessica, is a quote that I found. The work you do while you procrastinate is probably the work you should be doing for the rest of your life. Indeed. So tell me a little bit more about that. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful way of looking at the world. <laughs> well, some people have misquoted me on it and, and thought I said, what you do when you procrastinate, not the work that you do when you procrastinate. So that should be explicitly clear. But I think like if you're like me and passionate about the work that you're doing, like you can kind of see what direction 
you're trying to pull yourself in and just go with the flow. I mean, it's really good to have a plan of what you'd actually like to accomplish. But at the same time, you shouldn't stick so strictly to that plan that you overlook you know, how your career and life are kind of organically growing. So, you know, you might have an amazing job that you love, but if you find yourself kind of like working on these side projects or working on something specifically at work, maybe you should focus that. And that's kind of how I fell into lettering, too, is like I would work on these design projects and just find myself being so thrilled whenever I got to attack the lettering part of it. And the more I started seeing that, the more I was like, man, I should really do this all the time. Thankfully, you do. So thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much for coming on Design Matters. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You can find out more about Jessica Hish on her website, jessicahish.is slash awesome. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.